evidence and answers. Aren't Mormons Christians also? And if so, why did they use the Book of Mormon in addition to the Bible? Who wrote the Book of Mormon and what does it say? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will address the topic of Mormonism and learn what the Book of Mormon says about Jesus. Now with part one of this fascinating message is Pat Zucran. Mormonism teaches that they have new revelation from God, the Book of Mormon, written by the prophet Joseph Smith. Mormons recognize it as divinely inspired and equal in authority to the Bible, but others have reason to doubt its claims. Now, the importance of the Book of Mormon is stated by Mormon apostle Orson Pratt, who wrote in 1851, he stated, The Book of Mormon claims to be a divinely inspired record. This book must either be true or false. If false, it is one of the most cunning, wicked, bold, deep-laid, impositions ever planned upon the world, calculated to deceive and ruin millions who will sincerely receive it as the Word of God. If true, no one can possibly be saved and reject it. If false, no one can possibly be saved and receive it. And there he clearly states the importance of the Book of Mormon. Now, one of the key tenets of Mormon faith is that the Book of Mormon is a historical book. Mormon leaders, apologists, and scholars have been adamant in declaring that the Book of Mormon is actual history. Well, let's examine this book and see if there's evidence to support its claim as an accurate historical work. First, let's take a look at the story of the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon is said to be a record of two ancient Jewish civilizations that migrated to America. The first group are the Jaredites, who left Babylonia during the building of the Tower of Babel, approximately about 2250 BC. According to the Book of Mormon, they migrated to America and established a civilization in America that lasted for nearly 2,000 years. They eventually succumbed to corruption and apostasy and were judged by God and eventually they were destroyed. Now there was a second migration from the Middle East to America. The second group of Jews left Jerusalem about 600 BC before the Babylonian exile during the reign of King Zedekiah. This group crossed the Pacific and landed on the west coast of South America. These righteous Jews were led by Lehi and his son Nephi. This group eventually divided into two warring camps, the Nephites and the Lamanites, and spread throughout North and South America. The Lamanites, because of their apostasy and their wickedness, were cursed with dark skin, and they were the forefathers of the American Indians. Eventually, a major war broke out between the Nephites and the Lamanites and a major battle was fought. The Nephites were eventually destroyed by the Lamanites in 421 AD in a large battle where thousands of lives were lost on the hill Cumorah in the state of New York. The Lamanite civilizations continued to degenerate and they had forgotten their history of Jewish origin. 
when Columbus found them centuries later, they had become, as the Book of Mormon describes them, a filthy and loathsome people. Latter-day Saints believe that during the end of the 4th century AD, the Nephite prophet Mormon and his son Moroni compiled records of these two civilizations using reformed Egyptian language and recorded this record on golden plates and hid them in the hills of Kumora near Palmyra, New York. And they would be hidden there until they were revealed at a later time. Now, according to Mormon history, it is believed that Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith in 1823 as a glorified resurrected being and delivered to him the golden plates from their hiding place in the Kumora Hills. Now, according to Mormon historian Leonard Arrington, Joseph Smith hid the plates in the ground, moving them to various locations for nearly four years to avoid them from being discovered by treasure hunters. Now, eventually, he brought them home to be translated. Now, according to Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, here's the account she wrote of Joseph Smith retrieving the plates. She writes, The plates were secreted about three miles from home. Joseph, on coming to them, took them from their secret place and wrapping them in his linen frock, placed them under his arm and started home. After proceeding a short distance, he thought it would be more safe to leave the road and go through the woods. Traveling some distance after he left the road, he came to a large windfall, and as he was jumping over a log, a man sprang up from behind it and gave him a heavy blow with a gun. Joseph turned around and knocked him down and then ran at the top of his speed. About half a mile further, he was attacked again in the same manner as before. He knocked this man down in like manner as the former and ran on again. Before he reached home, he was assaulted the third time. In striking the last one, he dislocated his thumb, which, however, he did not notice until he came within sight of the house when he threw himself down in the corner of the fence in order to recover his breath. As soon as he was able, he arose and came to the house. So that is the account of the retrieval of these golden plates as recorded by the mother of Joseph Smith. He dug up these plates, wrapped them in linen, placed them under his arm, and traveled through the woods where he was attacked several times. And He ran as fast as he could for a few miles till he made it home. That's the account given by his mother here. Joseph Smith stated, These records were engraven on plates which had the appearance of gold. Each plate was six inches wide and eight inches long, and not quite so thick as common tin. They were filled with engravings in Egyptian characters and bound together in a volume as leaves of a book, with three rings running through the whole. The volume was something near six inches in thickness, a part of which was sealed. Now, there's a lot of question as to the historical veracity of this account by Joseph Smith. One of the biggest problems is this. Gold weighs about 1,204 pounds per cubic foot. So if we use the dimensions given by Smith, we can correctly conclude that the plates were about one-sixth of a cubic foot. In other words, if the plates were made of gold, as he states, they would have weighed about 200 pounds. And this is problematic, since no one believes that it is physically possible to carry such a weight 
for any considerable distance, much less be able to run away from thieves bent on stealing the plates with them under your arm. So it seems highly implausible that Joseph Smith could carry these gold plates under his arm and run at full speed for three miles as he claims. This is one of the many problems that surround the historical veracity of the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith states that these plates were written in Egyptian. And so this is the account of how he translated the plates from Reformed Egyptian into English. According to Mormon history, Joseph Smith used an occult seer stone, which he used in translating the plates from Egyptian into English. According to the writings of eyewitnesses Emma Smith, one of Joseph Smith's wives, William Smith, his brother, and David Whitmer, one of the three key witnesses, Smith used a common occult practice known as crystal gazing. In 1877, David Whitmer wrote this. He stated, I'll now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light. And in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus, the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man. Emma Smith wrote to her children, In writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, he sitting with his face buried in his hat, with the stone in it, and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. So according to these accounts, Joseph Smith received his revelations word for word using the occult seer stone. Now, by contrast, the Bible was not given to us in a word-for-word -word dictation form, nor is there a case of any biblical writer using occult objects to receive revelations from God. Now, Mormons point out that the Old Testament priests used what's called the Urim and Thummim. Now, Mormons point out that the priests in the Old Testament used the Urim and Thummim, but their purposes was quite different. These were used for a time by the Aaronic priests only to gain answers of yes or no from God to particular questions. These lots were cast to discern God's will, not to receive content for divine revelation. And finally, we must understand the Aaronic priesthood and its practices is replaced by the finished work of Christ. According to Hebrews chapter 7, the Aaronic priesthood is done away by the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Also throughout the Old Testament, occult methods such as crystal gazing are forbidden in the Bible. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 18 states, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or sorcerer, or charmer, or medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So occult 
practices are forbidden throughout the Old and New Testament. Mormon theologian Bruce R. McConkie even denounces using objects to gain new revelation. He condemned Hiram Page, one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, for using a seer stone to gain new revelation. So Joseph Smith obtained his revelations contrary to the method of inspiration received by the biblical prophets and apostles. Now Joseph Smith claims that after he translated the plates, he returned them to Moroni and the plates were then taken back up to heaven. Therefore, there's no way to verify the veracity of the plates or Smith's translation. Smith's only defense of his account are the 11 men who signed statements claiming to have seen the golden plates. Therefore, the credibility of Smith's account rests on the testimony of these 11 witnesses. There are three key witnesses who claim to have seen the angel show the golden plates to them. The remaining eight alleged to have seen the plates, but not the angel. The Mormon Church asserts these men never denied their testimony. However, when we examine the lives of the witnesses, we find they were untrustworthy, wavering, and gullible witnesses. Here's the historical record of some of the witnesses. Six of the eleven witnesses, including the three key witnesses, were eventually excommunicated from the Mormon Church. Former Mormon President Ezra Taft Benson summed up the legacy of the eleven witnesses this way. He states, Six of the original twelve apostles selected by Joseph Smith were excommunicated. The three witnesses to the Book of Mormon left the church. Three of Joseph Smith's counselors fell. One even helped plot his death. The wolves among our flock are more numerous and devious today than when President Clark made a similar statement in 1949. Now, the three key witnesses, since their testimony is the most important, we need to examine their lives. In a letter dated December 16, 1838, Joseph Smith stated this about the three key witnesses and John Whitmer, who was one of the eight witnesses. Joseph Smith wrote, John Whitmer, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris are too mean to mention. Martin Harris's testimony shows him to be a gullible and unstable man. He changed his religious conviction approximately 13 times. He joined several Christian denominations and other cult groups, which include the Universalists, the Strangites, and the Shakers. In the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith gave revelations in which he denounces Martin Harris and calls him a wicked man. The Mormon leaders published an article in the Elder's Journal, a Mormon publication edited by Joseph Smith, in which they accused Harris to be guilty of swearing, lying, cheating, swindling, drinking with every species of debauchery. Here, the leaders of the Mormon Church strongly criticize the character of Harris, who is one of the three key witnesses. Oliver Cowdery, another one of the key witnesses, was also shown to be a very gullible man. He was led astray by Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses, who himself claimed to have divine revelations from his own seer stone. Although Joseph Smith denounced Hiram as a false teacher, Smith stated, To our grief, however, we soon found that Satan had been lying in wait to deceive. Brother Hiram Page 
had in his possession a certain stone by which he obtained certain revelations, all of which were entirely at variance with the order of God's house. Despite Smith's condemnation, Oliver Cowdery joined Page's movement. So not only was he a gullible man, he was also indicted on several accounts of fraudulent business practices. The Mormon Church, in a letter, wrote, During the career of Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer's bogus money business, it got abroad into the world that they were engaged in it. We have evidence of a very strong character that you are at this very time engaged with a gang of counterfeiters, coiners, and blacklegs. Cowdery was eventually excommunicated, and he later joined the Methodist Church. David Whitmer, another one of the key witnesses, wrote, God spake to me again by his own voice from the heavens and told me to separate myself from among the Latter-day Saints, for as they sought to do unto me, so should it be done unto them. In the spring of 1838, the heads of the church and many of the members had gone deep into error and blindness. About the same time that I came out, the Spirit of God moved upon quite a number of the brethren who came out with their families. All of the eight witnesses who were then living, except the three Smiths, all came out. So according to David Whitmer, many had discovered the true nature of Joseph Smith's religion and come out of the church. David Whitmer, in this statement, denounces the Mormon church and encourages people to follow his example and the example of other witnesses and leave the church. Joseph Smith, in response, attacked the character of David Whitmer. Smith stated, God suffered such kind of beings to afflict Job. This poor man who professes to be much of a prophet has no other dumb ass to ride but David Whitmer to forbid his madness when he goes up to curse Israel, not being of the same kind as Balaam's, he brays out cursing instead of blessings. Now, as you can see, the character and life of the 11 witnesses to the Book of Mormon are very different from the disciples of Jesus Christ. None of the apostles wavered in their defense of Christ, even though all suffered and most died for their faith. The apostles remained consistent in their teaching and never fell into any type of apostasy or rejected their faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives were marked by honesty and integrity. They were never indicted for any criminal activity except for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The character of the Book of Mormon's 11 witnesses do not strengthen Smith's defense, but cast further doubt into the authenticity of his account of the Book of Mormon. Now, another key area to examine regarding the Book of Mormon is archaeology and the Book of Mormon. Archaeology is a great test to see if a book is a historical work. Since the Book of Mormon claims to be a historical work, does it have the archaeological evidence to back up its claims? According to the Book of Mormon, Jews migrated from the Middle East to Central and South America and established great civilization on the continents of North and South America. The Book of Mormon states that large cities were built so that by 322 AD, the whole face of the land had become covered with buildings and the people were as numerous, almost as it were, the sand of the sea. So in the Book of Mormon, one of the books is called Mormon, chapter 1, verse 7, 
This is a direct quote. The population of Israelites in North and South America had become vast. It says here, as the sands of the sea and that buildings and great civilizations were there throughout North and South America. In fact, according to the Book of Mormon, 38 cities are specifically mentioned in the Book of Mormon. Also, in that final battle between the righteous Nephites and the wicked Lamanites, it states that nearly 230,000 Nephites were killed near the hills of Cumorah in New York. Mormon apostle Orson Pratt believed that the Lamanites gathered by the millions at the battle of the hill of Cumorah. Mormon apostle Bruce R. McConkie agreed with this assessment when he wrote, Neither the Nephites nor the Jaredites repented when rivers of blood flowed on their battlefields and millions of their number were slain by the sword. So with populations that great, with that many vast cities throughout North and South America, we should expect to find an abundance of archaeological evidence of these people and these civilizations. However, one thing that has frustrated Mormon archaeologists is that there is no evidence to validate the claims of the Book of Mormon. In fact, the Smithsonian Institute, in a letter to the Mormon Church, states, quote, The Smithsonian Institution has never used the Book of Mormon in any way as a scientific guide. Smithsonian archaeologists see no connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the book. The National Geographic Society writes this, With regard to the cities mentioned in the Book of Mormon, neither representatives of the National Geographic Society nor archaeologists connected with any other institution of equal prestige has ever considered the Book of Mormon in locating historic ruins in Middle America or elsewhere. So here are two letters from some of the most prestigious historical societies stating that the Book of Mormon is not used in any kind of historical way. Even Mormon archaeologists admit that there is no conclusive evidence to support the Book of Mormon. Dr. Hugh Nibley, a Mormon apologist, states in his book, Since Cumorah, he writes, that no real archaeological proof for the Nephite civilization exists. He writes regarding the Nephites, all that we have to go on to date is a written history. There is nothing, whatever, that an anthropologist or archaeologist as such can say about the Book of Mormon. D. Green, professor of anthropology at Weber State University and a very respected Mormon scholar states, The first myth we must eliminate is that Book of Mormon archaeology exists. No Book of Mormon location is known with reference to modern topography. Biblical archaeology can be studied because we do know where Jerusalem and Jericho were and are, but we do not know where Zarhelma and Bountiful or any other location for that matter were or are. It would seem that a concentration on geography should be the first order of business, but years of such an approach has left us empty-handed. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Part 1 of Pat's study on the Book of Mormon. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. 
log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online for more Evidence and Answers. <laughs>